In the first uh, lesson, we had a look at the messenger and uh, what it is, what it takes to become a messenger to Muslims. We introduced that topic. And we introduced the idea of uh, leading a Muslim to a place where he'll actually sit down and enter into a teacher uh, teaching situation where you can uh, enter into your agenda and share with a Muslim what is uh, the Christian message all about. We want to spend a couple of minutes now talking about um, just some issues about that teaching session. And uh, just to, to, uh, to draw the importance of what it is if you ever become a teacher, have the opportunity to sit down and share the gospel in, a, in an actual formal teaching session. And there's just a couple of, of simple things that, that we've noticed as we've done this time and time again, and uh, not just ourselves, but other people as well. And these are very practical suggestions. One of them is dress. If uh, you call yourself a teacher uh, in uh, many uh, third world countries or Muslim countries, and uh, you come and say, I'm a teacher, but you're dressed in a t-shirt, and you're dressed in your shorts and your sandals, and that's the way you walk around, they won't believe you're a teacher. Because in many countries, you look, you see how teachers dress. Maybe they wear a special hat or a special uh, robe or something about them that says, I'm a teacher, I'm a respected person in society. So think very quickly about what do you dress as, even, as you come into a teaching uh, session. Another thing to think of is teaching styles. And there are different styles of teaching used in different countries. I can't tell you what you should use. The best thing to do is if you are in a, uh, a country that's not your own country, look on uh, television and see what kind of teaching do they do there. What do, how do they uh, act in the mosque? Does the teacher sit in front of his students? Does he sit above his students? Uh, does he sit? Does the teacher stand? Does, um, uh, what kind of style does he use? Perhaps he uh, uses memorization or um, re refers back to the certain points. Watch teachers that are popular and learn what are the styles of teaching that are used in those countries because that's what they're used to. Another thing is the use of notes. We have uh, discovered that uh, oftentimes we would get in teaching and we would bring our notes with us. Here's our notes. And I would be referred to my notes. And then we'd say, now, it says here in the Bible. And then we turn on the Bible and I go back to my notes and look at the notes. And then here's the Bible. And we go back and forth. At the end of the session, the person would say, oh, I, can I borrow your notes? I'd like to read those. Well, I wasn't expecting that, but okay, here's my notes. And the student never returns because the student has the authoritative document, the notes. That's not what you want to happen because the authoritative document is the Bible, not the notes. And so it's much better to memorize your lessons because in most countries, if you are a teacher who knows his material, you don't need notes. You should be able to enter into a, a, your teaching time and be able to take someone and open the Bible and take them to Bible verses and teach them what Christians believe without always referring to a book or notes or secondary topic. And so we've discovered notes are out. Now, if your memory is very bad, um, maybe you want to... I've, I saw my friend Harry. We mentioned before Harry. He, uh, he had a, a little card, just a 3 by 5 card, where he had Bible references on it. He had it tucked in his Bible. And that way he would forget sometimes. He could look, oh yeah, and that's the reference. That's fine, because it's not a whole set of notes. He, he just has a little something he could follow. Sometimes I might even just lightly pencil into my Bible where the next verse is as I have a plan to take someone through. So my little cheat note is there. I know where to go next in my set of lessons. But it means that I'm not following notes. I'm taking my student to the Bible. 
And at the end, when the student says, oh, can I borrow the Bible? I'd like to read that. Lovely. Give them the Bible and let them take it home because that's what you want them to do is take the authoritative document home, not your notes or somebody else's book or whatever. Now, seating is important. In many of our cultures, we don't think much about seating, but a lot of cultures around the world, seating is important. And um, there are seats of honor and there are seats that are of lesser honor in rooms. And uh, you may not recognize that, but generally, if the people come into a room, they take their shoes off at the door. So the lowest seats of honor are at the door. And often the highest seat of honor is across from that door. And usually in a room, it's got something special about it. Maybe the picture of the grandfather is above it, or it's a nicer chair or something than that. Now, where do you sit as a teacher? Do you sit by the door? Do you take the seat of honor? How do you, how do you conduct yourself? This is something you're going to have to work out, but you think carefully about seating. And are you going to sit at a table? Are you going to sit on the floor, as they do in many cultures? And then how will you handle yourself? So think through the whole concept of seating. Think through how are you going to handle the Bible? You will discover that many uh, Muslims, uh, they have very few books in their house, but if they have a Quran, they'll keep it up very high because they would never allow the Quran to touch the floor and they would treat it as a holy book. So if we come in with our scriptures and we put it on the floor and we pick it up and we do things, they may be shocked at the way we treat this book because we treat it with very little reverence. So treat the scripture reverently. That generally means don't scribble and write all over your Bible. Some of us change our Bibles every year or two and so we get a new one and the old one has all of our notes and stuff in it. M many Muslims don't understand why we would be so um, uh, irreverent in the way we handle our scriptures. But if you must underline, and it's okay, you can carefully underline in your Bible, but I have seen Muslims marvel when they look at a Bible and realize this book has not just been read, it has been studied, because they can see the way that we've, we've carefully marked our Bible and maybe written a little something very carefully, very neatly, and they recognize, okay, there's reverence there, but it is a book that is studied different from the way Muslims approach their Quran. The Quran is not something you study because to study it usually means you question it and you never question it so the way they approach their scriptures is you memorize rather than you study it and question it. So handling of the scriptures is a very very important uh, thing that you need to think of when you go into a teaching session. The next idea is refreshments and um, do you serve refreshments? If the, if the teaching is in your home, um, do you get out tea and do you serve the tea? Do you have tea at the beginning and the middle at the end? What kind of teaching class do you have where you're serving and eating cookies while you're studying? So think that one through carefully. Maybe you serve tea when people arrive, then clear it away, and then you can sit and begin to go uh, through the scriptures. So we think carefully uh, uh, through the whole idea of refreshments because we want people to respect what we were doing. Well, that brings up the question of location. Where do you do these? And we've done uh, discovery lessons, or the ones that we follow, we've done discovery lessons all over the place, in restaurants, in homes, in vehicles, I mean, many different places. And uh, location is often a challenge. If you go to your Muslim friend's home, then the location is sort of out of your control. 
The phone rings, people are coming over, maybe children are going back and forth, a relative drops in, you get interrupted all the time. So be aware that uh, that could be a very difficult situation. Um, if you go to a restaurant, and we've had this, we're in a restaurant, and somebody comes in, oh, hi, and then hi, and then all of a sudden, that's the end of your lesson for the day. So restaurants can be disruptive. Many times, um, the lessons, uh, the teaching takes place either in the home of the teacher or in the home of the Christian contact. And uh, that is often the best location where you can control what is happening and you can take maybe an hour at a time and, and go through the scriptures and, and learn. He, they can learn and see and question and talk together about what the Bible says uninterrupted by what's going on. Now, how long do you take to teach and how much time, how many... How many teaching sessions and how long should they be? This is actually a very, very important topic. Can you imagine, um, from a Muslim's point of view, he's coming to get some lessons on uh, Christianity, and uh, you come in and he sees, here's the Christian with his Bible. Now, the Bible's much bigger than a Quran. And maybe you do, as in the discovery lessons, chapter, um, the first lesson is all about creation. We look at the, uh, God created a perfect world, God created a perfect man, a perfect woman, and a perfect marriage. That's all we cover in, in the first lesson. It takes an hour because this is a whole new concept for a Muslim to grasp. So just by going through that, and the Muslim realizes we've covered Genesis 1 and 2. And he looks at the entire book and realizes, you know how long it's going to be to get through a Bible that thick? And all we covered was two lessons. And so if you do not define at the beginning, they may never come back. Because they think, I've committed to this and it's going to go on and on and on forever. Quick, get out quick. That's why we defined it and we said it takes us six hours. So they know, okay, I can commit to six hours and there's an actual time and then we decide how long, how many sessions. Do you want to do two hours at a time or one hour at a time, six nights and should it be one night a week or should it be all, all one night after another and so forth. And so uh, we, we define this early so they know what they've committed to, we know what we've committed to, and we know how much time we have to actually share with them what the gospel message is all about. So the, um, the number and the length of sessions is very, very important. Repetition and memorization are important. We often, as Westerners, at least I as a Westerner, I don't use repetition and, uh, and memorization. But... Uh, I've discovered that that is a, a common way of learning. And as I worked among, uh, for a time among people who were illiterate, the only way to teach was to get them to memorize and repeat the verses over and over again so they, when we left the session, they had memorized the, the teaching that was there. So that's um, repetition and memorization. Uh, adaptability is important. You need to be able to adapt and change the things that you're, that you're talking about. So if you're starting to teach your lesson and you realize that they're not ready for this, maybe it's time to back off. Don't just give and give and give information if they aren't receiving it. You need to make sure that you are communicating, talking one-on-one -on -one so that people actually understand what's going. So be adaptable and keep to the point. The last question is, who should be present? That is a difficult uh, question. Preferably, it's a seeker, not just a not interested or somewhat interested person, but a seeker that you're sitting with and they want to know answers. They're asking and you're sitting down and sharing the gospel with them. But what happens if they say, I'd like to bring my friend? Now, 
So say my wife is sharing with a, a Muslim a girl and she says, I'd like to bring my girlfriend along. So the girlfriend comes in and uh, you discover then, but the girlfriend is really not interested. She's more interested in being in a foreigner's home. She's not interested in Christianity. Suddenly the whole conversation changes because you are now dealing with a not interested person and a seeker and you're trying to answer those questions or a somewhat interested person. So it's very difficult to mix people at different levels of their understanding of, of uh, Christianity and then to put them together, the teaching session falls apart. So the best way is to make sure you, if you're going to have two people, to have two seekers. Now what happens if the guy says, well, I want my girlfriend to come? Lots of little alarm bells go off in my mind. Lots of dangers here. Because in many cultures, guys and girls get interested in each other, but where can they go? Because their culture doesn't allow them to be together. But if they both come to the foreigner's home, then they can visit and look into each other's eyes, and you can talk away all you want, and maybe they're not interested at all in what you're saying because they're more interested in each other. And this is an opportunity to be with each other. So you need to be very, very careful when you mix guys and girls, especially in a Muslim setting. And, and why is this? Even brothers and sisters I would be reluctant to bring together. Should be women with women and men with men. If there's going to be a group, and sometimes you get, uh, if you ever uh, read Abdullah's story, he shares about six men. All of them with big beards and no mustaches, I mean, from the brotherhood. And they came to him and said, you know, we want to teach you about Islam. He said, I will learn about Islam if you will learn about Christianity. So they agreed to swap. And uh, he would sit under their teaching, and then he would have an opportunity to teach them. And so he took them through discovery lessons. Uh, they did it in three hours, I think three, three different sessions, and they went through what does a Christian believe. Um, always make sure that you are outnumbered if uh, when you're when you're teaching there should be more muslims than there are christians present otherwise people feel like they're being ganged up on see if i'm a teacher and i've got my friend who would like to come sit in on a teaching and somebody else would like to come and see how we teach and then my this muslim comes in and suddenly there's three people he's confronted with all of them interested in you know seeing him convert it's very overwhelming so we need to be very careful that we don't um, overwhelm the person that we're talking to. And so if there's going to be multiple people, make sure they're the multiple people, not ourselves. And uh, we can defend ourselves, defend our faith, but allow them to be more so they feel more in control and not threatened as much by the numbers. So numbers are important as who should be there and who shouldn't. Now, the question is, what do you do at the end of your teaching time? We use discovery just because uh, when Abdullah put them together and was using them, it was a very useful outline. You can use whatever outline you want. The discovery lessons were very simple. Lessons, uh, lesson one was, as we said, um, perfect man, perfect woman, perfect creation, perfect marriage. That was all the Muslim could handle. This is phenomenally different than what he has taught. And actually, if he can grasp that concept he will end up understanding what the gospel is all about. Because in Islam, they have no fall. Nothing is broken. It's just the way God created it. So nothing's broken. Nothing needs fixing. You don't need a savior. And so if they understand that the world we live in is broken, that relationships are broken, and everything is not the way it, is, it should be, and it's not pleasing to God, then we can move on. And so that was the first lesson. Perfect world perfect creation, perfect marriage, and so forth. 
Second lesson then was what went wrong. And we look at what is sin. And we look at the Garden of Eden and we look at, um, at the, the sacrifice that was to be made, a blood sacrifice that was to be made. And this pattern that was to be repeated on and on of the blood sacrifice that was to be made. Lesson uh, number three then, um, we, we could do very three or four, you can exchange back and forth. Um, the third lesson is to take and talk about um, uh, what is the, the, the message of the Old Testament and, uh, and what is the message of the Bible? What did these prophets all talk about? To take a, a, a lesson line and uh, we often would do a timeline and say, here's a timeline. Imagine here's Adam and here we are today. Now, we're in the middle somewhere here. Let's put Jesus, okay? Now, or we could put Muhammad, okay? We could put Muhammad on the timeline. Okay, and we see now, the prophet Esau, where is he on the timeline? Is he before or after Jesus? And they have to think for a minute. Oh, he's before, okay. Put him before, okay. Now, Moses, where does he come on the timeline? Oh, I don't know. Is he before or after Jesus? Oh, he's before Jesus, or is he? How far before Jesus? Where do you put him? Well, Moses, his sister Miriam was probably the mother of Jesus, so he would go just right here. And then we have to explain, no, because they have no concept of chronology. And we begin to place the prophets on the timeline. And as we go down, uh, they begin to see all of these prophets. And then we can talk about what was the message of the prophets. And we can go through that and say, well, wh who were these prophets? What was their message? And uh, talk about why they came. And all of them had two messages. Now the two messages were very simply, you can go to Isaiah, go to many different books, the prophets came and said, woe to you Sidonians, woe to you Egyptians, woe to you, and eventually Isaiah says, woe is me, and uh, as he goes through all of these. So they came and they spoke to nations. Muslims will love this. They're prophets to nations. And they spoke to the nations about the things they were doing wrong. But there was a second thing that the prophets did. All the prophets spoke about a coming Messiah. And then you can go through and show them. All of them are pointing to this coming Messiah. This is the one who is coming. And so this is the message of the prophets. Well, when we get over to, finally over to the fifth hour, then uh, we can introduce who Jesus is. Because now they understand that um, there's, uh, the world was created perfect, that sin came into the world, and a blood sacrifice was needed, that the prophets all were looking forward to Jesus. Now finally Jesus comes in perspective. So it's taken us four hours to introduce who Jesus is. But finally we introduce here is Jesus, who he is, and how he came to fulfill what the prophets spoke about, and how he was the Messiah. And what did the Bible say about the Messiah? And then we can look at um, why his sacrifice was acceptable. And then finally, the last lesson is, well, what do you do with this? If a person would follow this, what does it mean in their life? Who is a true follower of Esau? Who's a true follower of Jesus? And what does that mean to count the cost and to be a follower of Jesus? Well, as, you, as I mentioned, when Abdullah had those uh, six guys from the Muslim Brotherhood, at the very end, they looked at it and they said, wow. He said, I never, I never understood it before. They said, that's beautiful. I don't agree with it, but it's beautiful. See, they caught it. They may have rejected it, but they understood the message. And so sometimes you may go all the way through and the person rejects it. That's fine. They, at least you had a chance to explain the gospel message. And they've had a chance to see it clearly. 
There may be some people who come through and they're still confused. Well, that means you need to back up and start and maybe go over it again. Some people have done discovery lessons two or three times before they actually sort of really get it and are ready to accept Christ. All in all, I think over the thousands of people that have done this, probably around 10 to 15% of the people who've done discovery have come through, accepted Christ, and have gone on then to be discipled. A lot of people may get the explanation, but may reject it. But if you do it with a thousand and a hundred accept, wow, praise the Lord for the hundred. And maybe God is still working in the hearts of those other 900 and they will come along at a certain time. But what an opportunity to sit down and to share with someone the gospel message from beginning to end just in that period of time. Well, let's move on from there and look at the challenge of sharing the gospel. Now, some people say, ah, I want to sh- do this. I want to I be a teacher. I want to have these opportunities to sit and to share. But I never get them. I mean, how do I get people to, to get to this point where, um, where, where I can sit and teach with them? Let me introduce two kinds of evangelism. It's what I call salt and light evangelism. Now, salt, is, and you find this, Jesus said we are to be salt and light. If you take some salt, imagine I'm boiling a, a, a pot of rice, and I have all this rice in there. If I take a handful of salt and put it in, the salt disappears, But the salt influences every little piece of rice is influenced by the salt. God has called us as Christians to be salt in the world. And we are to influence all of the people who are around about us. And so there's that role of evangelism where we go through and we talk to the shopkeeper, we talk to our friends, we talk to our schoolmates, we talk to the people at work, and we are salt in their community. And we are, we are there and they see our lives and we are talking to them and interacting. This is evangelism. And just being there and they can see who we are. Whenever I move into a new community, maybe there's no Christians there. I was in one community. They, they, never, they never didn't know what a, a Christian was. Never met a Christian. And uh, it was, we actually moved in during the month of Ramadan and we were there a couple of days and it was the feast just after Ramadan and early in the morning, bang, bang, bang on our door. Here's all our neighbors. They've all come over to, to greet us for the feast. They had no concept. It wasn't our feast. It was their feast. It was a special Islamic uh, celebration. We greeted them. It wasn't until about four in the afternoon until one older person came and then he said, do you, really, do you celebrate this feast? You know, but we'd been celebrating all day with them. But I mean, it's like, well, this is your feast, you know. And I said, we have our feasts at Christmas and Easter, and we'll explain those to you. But, I mean, we're celebrating and enjoying your feast. But, I mean, they, they had never met Christians. They didn't know about us. So when, when we moved into that community, we are salt to them. And I had to think in terms of, I need to prepare the community for the church that is eventually going to be in the middle. My job isn't just to go in and find one, two, and three people and try to witness to them. My job is also being called, I'm a messenger to the community. And as they look at my life and as they see who I am, they want to, uh, they, they can understand who are we as Christians and they will not be opposed. I hope after I've lived there a while, they understand who Christians are and they will be more accepting when a new community of believers is born in their midst. However that community looks, that's not what I'm defining, but there's going to be someday a new community of the followers of Esau in that community. And so we want that community to accept them 
and to understand who they are. So I am a messenger to the community and I'm trying to influence people by telling stories. As we said in the first lesson, telling a story, that story makes its way around the community and so forth. So that salt kind of, of, of ministry. The light kind of ministry is different. Light is when you get that opportunity to sit down, open the scripture, and pour light into somebody's life. And so we look for those kinds of opportunities as well. Now, maybe God calls you into a salt type of ministry. And maybe you will feel frustrated because all of your life is spent influencing communities and broader things. And you say, I've never, ever had the opportunity to sit down and, and share the gospel with someone. That doesn't mean you're not doing evangelism. Maybe you are that salt kind of person and God has given you a special ministry to influence the community and people around about you. Uh, but maybe uh, he's given someone else the role. As Paul said, um, uh, you know, so uh, Apollos watered, I mean, I planted and I, I've watered and so forth. Different people plant, different people water. Some will reap a harvest and other people are just planting seeds. So God gives different ones of us different kinds of ministries. And maybe he will give you a special ministry reaching not interested people. Remember we talked about not interested, somewhat interested, and seekers. Well, if God gives you a ministry to work with not interested people and to get them interested so they're somewhat interested, that is a spiritual victory in that person's life. They have made a huge change from I'm not interested at all to, okay, I'm interested. Do Christians pray? I want to know a little bit about this. I mean, that is a huge step in their life. And God sometimes calls people and that's the role that they have. And they help people move from not interested to somewhat interested. Sometimes God calls us and we become specialists, it seems, at moving people from somewhat interested to seekers. And then we invite in the teacher, but we never end up doing the teaching because God just gives us that role of moving people over to, to getting them ready to hear the gospel message. This is all part of evangelism and we all work together in this. So perhaps you will never get a chance to teach. Maybe you will become a teacher, but God gives us different roles to different people at different times. Now, let's talk a little bit and backtrack a little bit and talk about being salt and going out into the community and being uh, a salt to that community. One of the most um, uh, useful ways of doing this is by telling proverbs or stories. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus said things that got people thinking. He had, they're clever things sometimes. Remember, the, they came to him and said, you should pay tax, you know, and you know, should, should we pay tax or shouldn't we? And he said, give me a coin. And he said, whose image is on here? Well, it's Caesar's. So he said, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. That's all he said. I mean, that shook a lot of people. That got them thinking. And these are the kinds of things we need to, to say as we go through life. We were down in Yemen once out in the country in a, in a small village. I was traveling with another brother. And uh, as we, we were... Um, Coming along, we, we talked to a Yemeni man out in the field, and he said, you know, where are you from? And we explained where we were from, and, and my friend was from Germany. And he said, oh, Germany. He said, how much does a bride cost in Germany? Now, how would you answer that question? What does a bride cost in Germany? See, he's immediately thinking, okay, bride prices here in Germany, guess what? In his mind, they're free, right? What's the bride price in America? There is none. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to go to a country where it doesn't cost you anything? 
So how, how would you answer that question? So what does a bride cost in your country? My friend thought for a minute, and I'm praying. And then my friend said, a bride in my country is very, very expensive. And he said, oh, really? He said, yes. He said, in my country, you must promise to love her and only her for the rest of your life and never to love another woman because you're giving all your love to one woman and you must decide that. That's what it costs for a bride in my country. The man was shocked. It's like, oh. And then my friend from Germany said, isn't that the way it is with God? Doesn't he want us and all of us and all of our attention? And then we left and we went on down the road. See, this is where we learned storytelling is what Jesus did, and he, Jesus didn't explain the story. And we would go on and, and, and went from village to village, and there were different ones of, of us that would go from place to place and just stop and be in the coffee house and tell them a story, or maybe say, uh, the prophet Esau told the story. We tell the story, never explain it, and go on to the next village. Well, after a few months, some of these guys went back through those villages again. And they were recognized. Oh, you're the guy who told the story. What did that story mean? We've been wondering about it for a long time. And so they told the meaning of the story and then told them another story. Would you like to hear another story? Yes, tell another story and then move on and let people think. Now, for many of us, we come from cultures where this is very difficult. We're not used to doing this, to just telling a story and leaving it. But this is the model Jesus used, and it's very effective. Effective with people who are not interested. And so they hear the story and it gets them thinking. And then when they hear it, they're ready, like, okay, that has meaning. What is it? Oh, that's what it means. Okay. And then they hear another story. And then it takes them a time to think that through. You're very slowly fanning that flame. And so storytelling and proverbs, telling proverbs is very, very important. Now, what are proverbs? Proverbs are just those little pithy sayings that, that make people think. And Many cultures, they have lots and lots of proverbs, and uh, people use them all the time. Um, and um, we don't. Many times, in, in, at least in the culture I come from, we don't use many proverbs. But I've learned that it's important to discover what are the proverbs that are said in that culture, and then to use those proverbs when I'm, uh, when I'm teaching and when I'm talking to people. Because proverbs means that you can say things but because you, you can say offensive things, but because it's in a proverb or in a story, people um, can't react the same way as if you came out and said it. And so um, let me give you an example of a, of a story um, that, uh, that we gave. And um, this one time, my friend and I, we were, uh, we were out in the desert. We were going from Bedouin tent to Bedouin tent. Um, we were looking for somebody, and uh, they were giving us directions. And one place we stopped, and we talked to a man, and we had a chance to share a story with him. And the story we said is, well, there was a man out in the desert looking for a certain sheikh. He's looking for his tent, and he wasn't sure where he was. He's a Bedouin. He'd moved his, out, his tents out in the desert. So whenever he came across some Bedouin, uh, a Bedouin tent, he'd say, tell me, where is the sheikh? Uh, have his tent now. And then people would say, oh, he's over in the, another valley over. Keep going. So then they would keep going through the desert looking for the sheikh. Eventually they met a man in the desert and they asked the man, do you know where the sheikh is? Oh, he said, yes, I know where he is. I can take you there. Oh, they said, uh, what's your relationship with him? Oh, he said, I'm the slave of the sheikh. Okay. And so they started off following the slave as he took him through the desert. 
As they went on a little farther, they met another man in the desert. And they said, oh, we're looking for the sheikh. Oh, he said, I can take you to the sheikh. And they said, oh, who are you? And he said, I'm the son of the sheikh. Now the question is, who would you rather have introduce you to the sheikh? And so they decided who, well, they had the decision, who should they go with to be introduced to the sheikh? Should they go with the, the slave or should they go with the son? That was the end of the story. And we went on. Do you understand the story? A Muslim will right away. Do you go with the slave, who is Muhammad, or do you go with the son, who is Jesus Christ? We didn't say it. We never said Jesus was the son of God. We could say the story and we could move on and we could let them think through what are the implications of what we are preaching and teaching. But it's done in a story form and at the end they're not angry because they have just the story. So telling stories, using parables, using proverbs is very, very important. Well, now we want to look at finding your identity in the community. It's very, very important to find out, to discuss and decide who am I in the community that I'm moving into. Imagine that you go into a, a Muslim community. Why are you there? What is your role? Do you go and announce, I'm a missionary. Um, how will you be received? Uh, do you go and say, I'm a tent maker. So I'm a secular person and I'm just living here like everybody else. How will they receive you when you try to teach about religion, but you've told everyone that you're a secular, you have a secular identity? And so there's a real challenge, and we have this crisis of identity. We want to be people to see us as secular and accept us, and yet we want them to accept us as authoritative religious people. And we're kind of caught in the middle. How can we be both? How can we be one? How can we be the other? And so there's a number of things that we need to think through as we move into a community and what our identity is. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, what does a holy person in this community look like? If you're in India, maybe he's got a red cross or a red mark on his forehead or yellow paint on his face or something. That's a holy person. If you're in an animistic village somewhere, you know, how do you tell the religious person? Well, maybe he's the witch doctor and he looks different or something. What is the characteristic of a religious teacher or leader or somebody who is authoritative. Maybe you're in a Muslim setting and all the Muslim leaders have big beards. I mean, maybe that's, you know, so think this one through. And, and how do people see you? For many years, people saw me as just the guy who lived next door. I remember when Harry uh, Young came out to, uh, to uh, Jordan to visit us, it's that my friend I told you about was in England. And we asked him to come out and share with us some of the things that he was doing. Um, one day, I, we, he spoke to us in a conference, and one day I needed to do some business, and I took him by a local church. Uh, it, was, it was a church, an evangelical church, and it was a youth meeting that was there, and I needed to see somebody that was there, so I left Harry uh, in the courtyard, and I went and talked to my friend. When I came back, Harry had five or six men gathered, young men gathered around him, and he was talking with them. He, somehow he just attracted people. They were just attracted to him. And uh, when he left, uh, we left, uh, that I didn't think anything of it till the next day there's a knock on my door and these young men were there and they said, who was that man who was with you yesterday? Uh, we, we, you know, we talked with them and we'd like, to, we'd like to study the Bible with them. And I had to explain, well, he actually last night he got on the airplane and he left and he went home. Oh, they said, that's too bad and they left. I was hurt because I was ready to teach the Bible but they weren't ready to hear it from me. They didn't ask me then to step in and teach them. 
because they didn't see me as a religious authority. They saw me as a tent maker, which I was, had a job, lived there, and was part of the church, but I wasn't the authoritative speaker on the Bible that Harry was. And so I realized I have this crisis of identity. Who am I? And how do I become seen as a godly person in their culture? What do I have to do Maybe uh, what are the roles or the way I, I dress or the way I act, the things I talk about, that they can begin to see Christ in my life and they can, would like to ask me questions. I find it challenging when I meet people who are gifted. Just God has turned them into teachers that are used by him and they get into situations and very quickly they've opened the Bible and they're sharing from the Bible. It's been a real challenge to me because I, I don't do that very easily and I need to learn how can I be seen as that person who is, can share the gospel. This brings up the whole question of contextualization or trying to give the, the gospel in a context that people can understand it. This has been a challenge for many years in, a, in the Muslim world as, as we go. How Muslim do we appear and how uh, Western do we appear? And in a Muslim's mind, he has this continuum where here's Westernism and here is uh, a strong radical Islam. And every Muslim that I meet, they, they, they categorize each other on this line. And so they want to know, are you a fundamentalist and are you a, you know, a zealot over here? Or are you, a, you know, just a very Western or are you somewhere in between? And everybody's on that line. And so they're looking at each other and trying to figure out where do they put them on that line? And so if the woman is wearing the scarf and the man has the big beard, they immediately put them over here because of the way they look. If the woman has got a, you know, a sleeveless top on and a short skirt and, and so forth and he's wearing shorts and sandals, then they're going to put them way over here just by the dress that they have. But they may look beyond that at many things in their life. And so how do you know what is... Um, uh, how are they putting you on that scale? Because they were looking at each other. And if you decide, well, I'm going to uh, wear a big beard and my wife's going to wear the Muslim scarf that they may put you over on the more radical side because you look like a radical Muslim. But the truth is, you're not a radical Muslim. And when they get to know you, they say, you're a liar. Because you look like a radical Muslim, but you're not a radical Muslim. In fact, you're sort of maybe not even a quasi-Muslim. We're not sure what you are you know, or where you stand, but you're acting. And so it looks like a double standard. It's like meeting somebody who always wears a uniform, like a military uniform. And, oh, well, who is he? He doesn't. He just buys them at the uniform shop and likes to wear them. I think, boy, that's pretty strange. You know, so why would you dress and act something that you're not? And so this is a challenge that we have to ask ourselves with contextualization, is what do we look like? How do we fit? If we want to be accepted as a messenger, then... I need to be truthfully who I am communicating that I am. And I need to think through how am I being received in this community? And am I being looked at as secular or religious? Am I being looked at as Western or Islamic? And all of these things, it's something you need to pray through. Because God will call different ones of us to different roles and places where we will be. There's not one answer that's right for everyone, but you must know before the Lord how you need to act in order to be accepted as a messenger to these people. 
Because remember, they want, we want them to look at us and be able to listen to us and say, I accept that this person has something to say. I remember being in a church once where a brother stood up and uh, there, there was sort of question and answers and they were having some sort of discussion. Every time he gave his opinion, everybody sort of looked away. They looked in their Bibles. Some people would start talking to one another. Nobody paid any attention to him. This was in an Arab setting. And I soon realized that they deliberately refused to listen to him. Now, I don't know what this brother had done or what the history was that was there, but those people rejected him as a messenger, totally rejected him as a messenger. We don't want that to happen. We don't want to go into a community and be rejected as a messenger. I talked to a couple uh, Europeans who were in Africa, in an African village, a Muslim village, and they told me, they said, I, we were there for nine years and we have yet to have a religious conversation. Every time we start, they change the subject. And as they, we went through these lessons, they said, this is the problem. We have never yet been accepted as valid messengers. We've never been able to share a message because people haven't accepted us. Oh, we can talk about agriculture. We can talk about the water project. We can talk about all kinds of things. And they've accepted us as technical Westerners, everything else. The moment we try to have a religious conversation, they change the topic. They will not accept us. And they said, the problem is we never thought this through. How do we become accepted in their community as a valid messenger? Well, one of the ways is to become close to people. I discovered that in the Muslim world that we were involved in, there is a concept of nearness and farness. And those who are near are generally your blood relatives. They are people who are in your family. They're near to you, and others are far from you. This is a very strong concept. When I got there, I wondered about competition, because on our street, there were four pharmacies right side by side. And then you had to go blocks and blocks and blocks before you found another pharmacy. Like, like, why were there four pharmacies together? And if you wanted to buy gold, you, you went to the gold market, where all the gold vendors are together. And if you wanted to buy rugs, you went over to the rug market. And there are all 30, 40 guys all selling rugs. I thought, what kind of competition is this? I mean, they're all right side by side. They've all got identical products. I don't understand this. Okay, and it just it doesn't work for me because I'm coming from a different worldview. But when I got there, I discovered you go to the person who is the store that is closest to you because it's your family and your family has connections. And so you go to the pharmacist who is closest to you and you tell him what you want. You trust him. He talks to you. He, and, he, and then he says, oh, if I don't have it and he'll run over next door because that's why they're close to each other. They can run next door and get the right product and come back and give it to you because the store next door has it because they serve people who are close to them. I have a friend who was an electrician and uh, he started his little business and uh, he had a little electric store. And he, after a week, I saw him. I said, how's your store doing? Oh, he said, the most amazing thing is happening. He said, I have people coming into my store that I don't know. I really wasn't expecting this. You see, he set up his store to serve those who were near to him, to serve his family, to serve his relatives, his tribe. And so when people came who were not related to him, he was surprised, but he had a good location because there were no other electricians close to him, and so he was getting business that were coming. So they, they have this idea of near and far. And this is in your Bible. The Bible talks about nearness and farness. Unfortunately, in the English translations that we have of the Bible, the concept is lost because the people who translated it didn't know it was an important concept. So when they come to Jesus, 
I mean, and they're, and they're talking to Jesus, and they said to Jesus, uh, who is near to us? And Jesus tells them the story about the man who goes down from Jericho. He's going down, and he falls among thieves, and eventually the Samaritan comes to him. And they get all the way to the end, and Jesus turns around and says, now who's near to him? See, we use that word neighbor in English. That's not the word that's used. It's near and far. Who's near to him? It was the one who helped him wasn't the religious people. It wasn't even his own kinsmen. It was this other man who came and helped. Who is near? Very, very interesting teaching in our Bible. Talks about we who were far have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. A very, very important concept. Well, one day I was out getting the, the oil changed in my car. And as I went into the oil shop, uh, I, I always went there. The man who owned it wasn't there. There was a little boy there, about 12 years old. He said, I'll change your oil. And we put the car over the pit and he got underneath and he took the bolt out, drained the oil and put the new... I watched him carefully, made sure he did it right. And when we got all done, uh, then I said, okay, how much do I owe you? And he looked at me, looked at my face, and then he gave me a price three times above the normal price. And I thought, oh boy. Now, if I start halfway down, I'm still going to pay more than I should pay. If I start at the real price and he starts there, if we meet somewhere, I'm still going to pay more than I should pay. How am I going to barter this? And uh, just as I was doing this discussion, the owner walks in. And we greeted each other and the owner said to the boy, what's happening? He said, oh, the foreigner came and I've changed his oil. And so he went over what he did and what oil and the oil, everything was fine. And so the owner said to the boy, so what price did you give him? And he said, oh, I gave him this price. And he told, me, told him the price. And the owner said, oh, no, no. He said, he's not far from us. He's near to us. Give him the near price. Oh, so the boy gave me the correct price. And that's the price that I paid. Nearness and farness. Very, very important concept that uh, we often, at least I coming from a Western uh, society, have missed. So imagine growing up and all your life you were told that you belong to this particular tribe. And your tribe is the best tribe. And your tribe is an honorable tribe. And your tribe is a good tribe. And wherever you go, you represent this tribe. So you, you, you have this whole concept that, that you deal with the people who are near to you. And you, they are the important people in your life, not the people who are far from you. So as I look at ministry to Muslim, it's an important thing to become near to people to enter into their community and draw near to them and to build that bridge so that we are accepted so we can then share a message. One of the best ways of doing this is not going to be a helper, but to be a learner. I had a very interesting situation. We moved into a Bedouin village. My job there was working with the Ministry of Antiquities and I was there to research. And so I would go to my neighbors and said, I want to learn from you. They were kind of surprised. And I said, you know, and we asked them about the plants that grew and what could be used for medicine and what was good for food for the sheep. And we were there as learners and they loved to tell us things. And we spent all the first months just learning, learning, learning about Bedouin lifestyle and how you move and how you set up a tent and what the camels are and the, the names for the different camels of the different years that they're born and so forth. And it wasn't until much later then that they accepted us as messengers and we could begin to share with them. So the whole idea of draw near to people, learn from them, and learn what and be, earn the right to become a messenger to them. I want to just mention a few more things in closing, uh, the close of this lesson, and that is 
when you're working with this group that are near to each other, they are threatened by anything from the outside that is coming in to disrupt their group. And so as we come and we want to share the gospel and lead this brother or this sister to Christ, we are robbing them from those that are near to them. And we're, we, we, we tend to separate them. We want them to follow Jesus and end up turning their backs on their families and becoming a follower of Jesus. And this is very, very difficult. And uh, we're asking them to leave. And this is when persecution happens. Because the family will react against this threat to this group that is near to each other. And so we must recognize that we are, are going to be working with the group, also with the individual. So if, if, that, if an individual comes to Christ, and I want to disciple that person, a big part of what I'm doing is trying to work with them so they can maintain nearness with their community. Abdullah put it this way. He said, this is called recognizing the other face. He said, every new convert has two faces. They have the face that they face the missionary or the Christian with, and they've learned to love the Bible. They've learned to love Esau. They've learned to love the stories in the Bible. They've learned to love God, and they love Jesus with all of their heart. At the same time, they're still members of their Muslim community. And they have their mother and their little brother and their little sister and their aunt and their uncle. And they love them. And they love them with all their hearts. And we are asking them to be torn apart. And we have to be very careful because they have these two faces. The face they face the Christian, the face they face the Muslim with. And they begin being two-faced. The real job of discipleship is to help that person unite those two faces together. Because very often we find some Muslims who when they come to love Jesus will abandon their Muslim faith, say, I'm going to be a Christian now and eventually go to the West and be a Christian and you've lost contact with that whole family and the rest of the group. Or maybe after some months of doing this, they're going, I can't be this, I can't be two-faced, it's too hard, and they abandon their Christian faith and they go back to being outwardly a Muslim, maybe a secret believer, but they never ever are um, followers of Jesus in a Muslim sense. So our job as disciples is to be able to unite these two faces so they are true followers of Jesus in that setting. We call this friendship discipling. And this means that this is what's going to take your time. Evangelism can go quite quickly. It's, evangelism is kind of like, you've seen those funny bicycles with the big wheel and the little wheel? Well, the little wheel's like evangelism. It rolls along. But when somebody comes to Christ, it's like the big wheel. It turns very slowly now. Now is a time of growth. And it takes time. It takes time to learn, to grow, to change, to become a follower of Jesus. This is why friendship discipling is so important. Don't just say, well, we're meeting for discipling on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. That's not what it's going to take. It's going to take more than that. Maybe it's going to take meeting more often. One time, a young guy named Muhammad uh, came to uh, two friends of mine, and uh, he'd become a believer. And uh, Muhammad was, uh, he, he was a, a migrant worker. He had come into the city. He lived in a hotel downtown. But he had come to follow Jesus. They had led him to the Lord. And after a while, these two young guys came to me, and they said to me, um, we have a problem. Muhammad keeps coming over to our house. He comes to our house every day. Soon as we come home, Muhammad shows up. And uh, 
they said to me, what, what, what do we do with Muhammad? I mean, he's just there. He's there all the time, every day, day in and day out. We can't get away from him. And I said, well, let's think about this for a minute. Why would Muhammad be coming? I mean, where does he live? Well, he lives in a hotel downtown with all these other migrant workers. Oh, I want, you know, what's it like down there? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, there's the language and the things that are going on, and there's prostitutes on the street, and there's, there's all kinds of things that are going on down there. It's not a good situation. Well, I said, well, you know what? Muhammad, he probably needs a place to go to. He doesn't want to be down there. I said, why don't you just let Muhammad sit in your living room? I mean, they just had, you know, the bedroom and the living room. It's a little small apartment. I said, why don't you just let him come over and hang out? Explain to him, maybe, because uh, you're studying, your students, maybe you want to study in the kitchen, but he can just be in the living room, listen to Christian music anytime he wants, read a book, but you go on about your life. Don't sit there and entertain him all day long. Just let him know he can just hang out there and see if that'll work. Well, sure enough, Muhammad did this. He came over and, okay, it was fine. He could come and he could read the Bible. He could listen to music. He could just hang out. Sometimes they would talk. Sometimes they, he would help them wash dishes or do their laundry or whatever. He just had a place to go to. And uh, after a while, uh, this went on for a couple of weeks. And then one day, Muhammad brought another young man with him. And he said, this is a young man. I said, I led him to the Lord. He's now a Christian. And he said to him, look, this is a living room. You can come to any time, day or night. It's always open. You can come here and read the Bible. And you can come here and, uh, and uh, listen to music. And if you have any questions, just ask these guys and they'll, they'll explain you know, what you're doing. But you know, try not to disturb them. But when you have a question, they're happy to sit and, and explain to you things from the Bible. And pretty soon, there were two of them sitting in the living room. And then there were three. And then there were four. Because they had a place of refuge that they could go to. Sometimes we forget the mosque is a place of refuge. The mosque is open 24 hours a day. Most evangelical churches are locked. And if you have nowhere to go at 3 in the morning, you can go to the mosque and sleep, but the church is locked. We need places of refuge. And as we are leading people to Christ, where are they going to go? And if we are messengers, we need to recognize uh, we are giving people a place of refuge. So just in summary, as we wrap up. What does it take to become a messenger to Muslim people? Yes, we need to prepare ourselves. We need to learn our Bible. We need to understand what Islam is about. We need to know all those things in our heads. But there's a lot of character issues. And God wants to work on us to make us to be into messengers for his kingdom. And so we need to be aware that God will begin to work in us, changing us, doing things in our lives to make us his, uh, his messengers. We need to be receivers, not givers. So we need to learn and receive as well. We need to understand the people we're going to. We need to think through what is it, how do they see us? How can they see us as holy people? People who are real true followers of Jesus, who pray, who are interested, who read the scriptures, to be transparent. And then how can we serve them? Not just talk, but also serve them. Perhaps God will give us the opportunity to be accepted as messengers so they will listen to us when we open our mouths. The next lesson we're going to look at is what do you say when you open your mouth and begin to share the gospel? Thank you.